Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I'm glad that you're here with us, whether you are in person or you are online. We're very excited that you are able to join us today. Uh, I want to take a little bit of a, a line, uh, and I hopefully I'm not disobeying any copyright issues or something like that. I'm sure Tommy's lawyer will be in contact with mine, and we'll figure all that stuff out later. No, one of the lines he said at the very, very beginning as he started their set, which was an awesome set, he mentioned something about hymns, how hymns are kind of this intergenerational connection point. I don't know if I'm quoting him exactly, but I think that was pretty close, talking about kind of the agreement and the alignment that we can have in, as different people from different age groups, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, and yet we can find agreement as we sing, and it's almost like as we put together the different pieces of a song, not every voice sings every part, but when every voice sings every part, you get this beautiful, just kind of concert and full sound, which is glorifying to God. It's great, it is great when we can agree, when things are put together, when the pieces come to play, it's awesome. Now I wanna take that idea though and turn it on its head a little bit. What happens though when we disagree? What happens when we don't see things the same? What happens when we don't see eye to eye? What happens when we have different perspective? What happens when we're reading the Bible well and applying it differently? What do we do then? As believers in Jesus Christ, it's difficult to work through disagreement. And sometimes we buy into the idea that that agreement and unity are the same thing. But we know in our marriages that's not true. You already know where I'm going. I can tell by a little bit of the laughter. You're like, I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh. I'm really close to my wife's elbow. I don't know if I want to address that. Right? But when God was marrying, performing the first wedding ceremony, he looked at two people, Adam and Eve, and he said, you're going to become one flesh. I don't believe God's expectation on them is you're always going to agree. Right? We can't even agree on where we're going to go eat. Getting that agreement is incredibly hard. We can still be unified, still have love, and disagree. How do we do that? And we have really been in a season where we've seen disagreement happen. Disagreement happened amongst believers, whether it be, should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Should we get vaccinated? Should we not get vaccinated? Who should we vote for? How should we align our political ideas with our Christian values? How should we handle racial issues? How should we handle social justice issues? How should we handle critical race theory? All of these different things, and we are in a season where we see over and over and over again disagreement. How do we handle handle that? How do we, how do we deal with that? Is, is disagreement always leading to discord, to disunity, to dysfunction? Or can we disagree in a loving way? And disagree in a way that actually doesn't diminish what we do, hurt what we do, but rather disagree in a loving way that allows us to actually see a positive effect. And that's my case to you this morning. I'm not going to go through all of those topics. We're not going to talk about critical race theory. We're not going to talk about mask wearing. We're not going to talk about vaccinations. But we are going to talk about how can godly people who are reading the Bible well, how can they disagree and not diminish their impact, not create disunity, discord, and dysfunction? 
So I'm going to show you that in Acts chapter 15. So we're going to take a pause in our John series, as probably you're anticipating. We're taking a pause in our John series, as I've talked about it. You thought, maybe this is a, a special passage. It is a special passage. In Acts chapter 15, we're going to look at two high caliber. You can't get much higher, especially in the first century world. Two high caliber people, godly people, and they're going to come to a disagreement. And here's what's going to happen. That disagreement is not going to lead to disunity. That disagreement is not going to lead to discord. That disagreement is not going to lead to dysfunction. It's going to lead to impact. And I think seeing this example will help us understand how we, as believers in Jesus Christ, can deal with disagreement. So if you're only going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. If you're only going to take one note, and I know many of you are plethora note takers. You write down more words than I say. Good for you. Okay? But maybe you're tempted like, well, I normally just keep it in my mind. I want you to write this one down. Okay? Put it in your phone. Maybe write it down on a napkin or something like that. If we have napkins in church, I don't know why we would. Right? Maybe you came from breakfast. I don't know. Write it down on something. The big idea for this morning is this. Loving disagreement can lead to lasting impact. Loving disagreement can lead to lasting impact. Let me show you how I get this from Acts chapter 15. We're going to start with verse 36. Acts chapter 15, verse 36 says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. So here's the setting of the disagreement. They come up with a plan. Paul and Barnabas just are kind of wrapping up a missionary journey. They have gone out. They have planted churches. They've seen people baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're seeing people grow. They're organizing churches. They're putting leaders in those churches. And as they're putting leaders in those churches, they want to make sure that they're checking up on those churches. Just like you go into your doctor's office for a checkup and somebody checks your pulse and your cholesterol and all those other different things. That's what Paul is saying. Barnabas, I think we need to go back. See how everybody's doing. And see if they're healthy. See if they're strong. This is part of our job. It's not to see somebody start in the faith, but see somebody grow in the faith. To see somebody mature in the faith. To make disciples of people. Not just converts. Not just get decisions, but get direction for people as they go throughout their daily life and all the way to the end of their life. And really even through the end of their life. We want to see them mature all the way. So that's the plan. Let's go back and let's do a visit. And as this plan comes out, disagreement comes out. Let me show you this. Verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. Sometimes you call him John Mark. John Mark, he, that's who he wanted to take. Verse 38. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. What's happening here? Disagreement. They don't see things the same. They don't see things eye to eye. They don't share the same perspective. They don't have the same outlook. They're not taking the same actions. Now just think for a moment, who are these guys? I mean, these are godly guys. If you were going to get a list of the top influential Christian leaders in the first century world, these guys are at least in the top five. At least. Right? If you're assembling the Avengers, the spiritual Avengers of the first century world, this is like Thor, Iron Man, Hulk, one of those, okay? 
These are, the, these are the big guns, if you will. These are godly men. Paul mentions first, or sorry, Luke mentions first Paul. Who's Paul? Paul is the most influential first century Christian leader, second to Jesus Christ himself. Nobody planted more churches. Nobody visited more areas. Nobody had as many frequent foot miles as him. Nobody. This guy advanced the gospel further than we, have, we know of anybody else. And there may have been somebody else, but what we have of recorded history in the first century world, nobody was a bigger mover and shaker than Paul. If he would have written one more book, just one more letter, he would have written half of the New Testament that we have now. Think about that. God used this man not only to plant churches, but to write the New Testament his very words. Is Paul a godly dude? Definitely. Well, who's this Barnabas guy? Again, Barnabas, just as godly. Barnabas gave the largest financial offering that we know about in the first century world. He was a giver. He was a giver. He was a man of high character. He went on missionary journeys with Paul. I mean, he's the guy that says, hey, let's take a round trip. Let's go check in on these churches. Barnabas, when the Jerusalem church is looking for leaders and they're seeing people starting to believe, specifically in a city called Antioch, they say, man, who are we going to take? Right? We need a leader. We need a godly person. We need to assemble the Avengers. Right? Who's on the top of our list? The Jerusalem church this is the mothership, if you will, in the first century world, especially in the very beginning, right after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All those leaders get together. You know who they ask? Barnabas. Will you go check that out? Will you go help them out? Will you go to Antioch? When Luke describes Barnabas, he says that he is a, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Well, that makes the problem a lot harder, doesn't it? I mean, these are top-notch dudes. You don't get much godlier than this. They have spiritual black belts. How is it that these guys disagree? How is it they don't see things the same? How is this working? Who's wrong? What's remarkable is Luke does not tell us. Luke does not paint this as something that someone's to blame, that someone's right and someone's wrong. He doesn't do that. And Luke's not afraid to do that. If you've read Luke's gospel, Luke is totally okay with embarrassing the disciples when they say something they shouldn't say. Just read through the gospel of Luke. He has no problem pointing out when somebody is doing something wrong. He doesn't do that here. He doesn't do that here. He just states that there are godly men, godly leaders, reading the Bible well, but applying it differently having a disagreement. What should that tell us? We should expect to disagree. I mean, if these guys disagree, I don't know about your spiritual resume, I don't feel like mine stacks up really that impressively to Paul and to Barnabas. I have not yet written a letter that's gotten in God's word. So if these guys are going to disagree, clearly we're going to disagree. So then how do we disagree? And how does that disagreement not lead to discord, to disunity, to dysfunction? Again, remember the big idea. Loving disagreement can lead to lasting impact. 
Now let's look at the disagreement just a little bit more. Look at the description. Very interesting. We're in verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Now, I don't know about you. That's not how I describe my arguments with my wife, right? That's how I describe cheese, right? Sharp cheddar, something like that. I don't say when my wife and I are at odds with each other, man, we are having a sharp disagreement, right? That's not the term I use. But this is an extremely powerful term. It can be used both negatively, negatively and positively. Sometimes positively, I think in Hebrews chapter 10, the same term is used. And it's talking about encouraging believers. So it has a softer tone, a positive tone, but it's used negatively. It's used negatively, and it is a strong word when it's used negatively. It means like exasperation. It can mean even anger, frustration in a disagreement. It's like that point when you're in a disagreement And the problem is that you don't understand the other side. The problem is what you understand is causing a disagreement. And if you've ever found yourself in a moment disagreeing with somebody and you throw your hands to your side, you lift your head in the air and breath comes out and you just go, "Ah." that's the idea. That's what's being described here. It's interesting, the same word is used in the scriptures to describe God's wrath. It's used in the scriptures to describe how Paul felt when he saw people worshiping false god. What does that tell us here? This isn't a minor thing. These men see things differently, and they can't put them together. It's like magnets. As they're pushing them together, the polarity doesn't match, right? It pushes away, and more pressure they apply, the more the resistance is stronger. It just keeps moving away. They can't see eye to eye. They can't agree, and their ideas are not compatible. Now, we hear that, and immediately, what do we think? I know naturally, what do we think? I know naturally what I thought in reading this passage, encountering this, or encountering this even outside of this passage in life. We think of that strong of a disagreement trying to pull these positions together and then pulling themselves apart, we immediately think, what? This is going to be bad. This is going to lead to disunity, discord, and dysfunction. But the next thing they do is the key to that not happening, to this being a loving disagreement that's going to lead to lasting impact. And just as these men disagreed, we will disagree, and their disagreement led to impact, so too our disagreements can lead to impact. Just because we disagree doesn't mean we have to diminish our impact. Let me show you what these men did. Again, they're disagreeing about taking this guy named John Mark. Now, John Mark, we're not told here, but later we learn in the book of Colossians that John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas. So Barnabas likes this guy. He's family. They go to Thanksgiving together. Even though Thanksgiving happens thousands of years after this point, but whatever, it still works in the sermon. They have meals together. He likes him. He's he's hopeful. So he wants to take him. Look what they do. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. So they separated from each other. Hmm. Now how can they do this? The disagreement's there. It's sharp. 
they decide to separate, to go different ways, to choose different paths. Now, I said these are godly men. Is this a lapse in their judgment? Is this a lapse in their godliness? Is this, is, is this just a case of somebody being right and somebody being wrong? Again, that's not portrayed here by Luke, the writer of this book. How can these men be doing this? I think we need to assume that these are godly men reading the Bible well, just applying it differently. Right? Let's just take, let's take Barnabas. Barnabas sees John Mark and he says, man, I believe in this guy. Right? Let's give him a second chance. Does that sound like a biblical thing to do? To give a second chance? To see potential in somebody? To say, hey man, you're going to be able to do it. I believe in you. Let's press on. Let's move forward. Yes, you abandoned us in Acts chapter 13. You left us. You didn't finish the work, just like Paul said. You didn't finish the work, but I believe in you. I believe in you, and I believe you need a second chance. Is that a biblical thing to do? Absolutely, right? Maybe Barnabas is reflecting on passages about like Moses, Great Moses, the, the wonderful leader that brought the people out of the slavery in Egypt and brought them to the promised land, that wonderful man. Before he did that wonderful work, work he found himself talking to a burning bush. God showed up in a miraculous way. This guy is a felon. This guy is a shepherd. He's smelly and he's sinful. And God shows up. And God speaks to him in a burning bush. And he says, Moses, hey, you know the world power of the day? People you're very familiar with? The big kids on the block? Egypt? I want you to go to them. And not just, not just any of them. I want you to go to the head guy. The guy they almost worship as a god. I want you to go to Pharaoh. And not with an army. Just take that stick with you, your staff, and some words. And here's what I want you to say. Let my people go. That's, that's a powerful commi commission, isn't it? That's a scary thing to do. And one of the most ironic scenes, I think, in the entire Bible happens when Moses gives his excuse. Moses, who has vocal cords, who can speak, who can make audible noises and construct them into very uh, understandable uh, syllables and communicate language, then speaks to a bush that's on fire with no vocal cords, but is speaking. And you know what he says to the burning bush, with no ears, by the way, with no eyes, with no vocal cords, he says to the bush, I can't speak. I wish I could just insert myself in the passage and say, yeah, neither can the bush, normally. Right? What are you talking about? If God can use a bush that's not on fire, clearly he can use you. He made you, and God shows up, and God doesn't accept this excuse. God gives him a second chance, and what does God do? God doesn't sit down and say, okay, Moses, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you a tutor. We're going to work on that stutter. We're going to get you hooked on phonics, and you're going to be great. No, no, no. What does he say? Do you know who I am? I make people deaf. I make people blind. I got you. God gave Moses a second chance. What about Jonah, the prophet? Maybe you're familiar with that story. Jonah runs away from God's assignment. Similar to what Moses did, but he went a lot farther. He ran away. Maybe for different reasons, but he ran away. What did God do? God stopped him in his tracks and he gave him a second chance. 
one of the most interesting parts of our passage, go to Acts chapter 9. Is this Barnabas, who's always the optimist, this Barnabas who just believes in people, who sees potential in people, this Barnabas actually believed in Paul when nobody believed in Paul. Paul was actually the recipient of his optimism in Acts chapter 9. The guy he's disagreeing with, the guy he has a sharp disagreement with, benefited from his optimism, benefited from his belief. Look, look in Acts chapter 9, verse 26. It says, And when he had come to Jerusalem, this is talking about Paul right after his conversion. Before his conversion, he was called Saul. When he was Saul, he was the most lethal person against the church of Jesus Christ. It's radical to think that the primary persecutor of the first century church became the primary church planner of the first century church. What a reversal of roles, right? But at this point, we're at that kind of turning point. He's just saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. He's just been commissioned by Jesus Christ. He's turning his life over. It's his conversion moment. He's just become a follower of Jesus Christ. But he still has blood on his garments from the saints who he has seen slain. And the church sees that. They know him. They know who he is. And they don't feel comfortable around him. I wouldn't either. Look at what the church does. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. I'm with you guys. But who saves the day? For they did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 27. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him on them how on the road he had seen the Lord. Barnabas comes through. Is Barnabas reading his Bible well? Absolutely. Absolutely. But he's disagreeing with Paul. Now you may think, well, after all that, clearly Paul's in the wrong. What Bible is Paul reading? Where is he going? Does Paul have a reason a biblical reason to not take John Mark. I feel like you could summarize Paul's posture in maybe a phrase that you've heard before. Fool me once, what? Shame on you. Fool me twice, what? Shame on me. What is Paul saying? I don't know if I can trust you, man. You abandoned us before. You're a quitter. I don't want to take you again. Now, is there any biblical foundation for that kind of posture? Absolutely. God speaks of how he responds to unbelief. God speaks of how he responds to cowardice. God doesn't always give second chances. We know that. Go back to that leader, Moses. Moses gets them out of the promised land, the guy who got a second chance before God. Sorry, takes them out of Egypt, brings them to the precipice of the promised land. They're about to get everything they've been waiting for for hundreds of years. And in his wisdom, he decides, let's send out some spies. So they send out 12 spies. Ten come back with a report, the armies are too strong, the people are too big. There's no way God can do this. Even though they're on the heels of the greatest deliverance ever given to a people, they don't believe that God can do it again. And the report of those ten spies spreads cowardice through the camp. Unbelief through the camp. And does God give them a second chance? No. He pulls it away. A 
whole generation is lost in the desert because of their unbelief and their cowardice. Wow. Maybe Paul is thinking of the words of Jesus. Go go to Luke chapter 9, just to show you this Jesus, as he's being approached by a man who, who wants to follow him, which sounds good, which sounds promising, which sounds like what Jesus is all about. Look at this man run up to Jesus and approach him. This is what he says in verse 61 of Luke chapter 9. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those in my house. Does that sound like a good thing? That sounds like a great thing. Big deal. He just wants to say goodbye. No problem. Now Jesus sees something else. Jesus is omniscient. Jesus can see into people's hearts. He knows the motives. He knows the intents. He knows the deepest desires that nobody else knows. And he sees something in this man. And listen to the very harsh words, right words, but harsh words of Jesus Christ. Look what he says, and then think of John Mark. Verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So is Paul off base? Again, both guys reading the Bible well. High caliber men. How does this disagreement lead to something positive? Because it's a loving disagreement. Let me show you their decision. Let's go back to Acts chapter 15. And we're going to read verse 30. Nine, one more time, and then go down. And there arose a sharp disagreement. They can't see things the same. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now I said it's a loving disagreement. How do we know that? Because they divided the work. Remember Paul in the beginning in his conversation with Barnabas that really was the setting for the entire disagreement was, hey, we got to go back to the other churches. We got to go help them out. Let's see how they're doing. It was great and it was fun to see them flourish, to start following Jesus, but we got to make sure that they're fit all the way to finish. We got to see them grow. We got to see them make it. We got to go back. And so they kind of draw out this map. Here's the section we need to cover. And what happens right here? They divide the sections. Now, that may not sound like that profound of an insight, but think of it. If one of them was in sin, would they have separated the work? If Paul thought Barnabas was in sin and therefore disqualified the ministry, would he hand over half the map to him? Absolutely not. If Barnabas thought Paul was in sin, would he hand over half the map, half the churches that he was there to build? Would he have handed over to him? No, he wouldn't. See, their disagreement didn't disqualify them for ministry. They didn't stop doing work. They just stopped doing work together. It was a loving disagreement. And what happened? There was a lasting impact for every single man involved. Let's just take Paul. What happened to him? What happened to him after Acts chapter 15? Well, it's interesting that as Paul separates the map with these guys, we now have two missionaries to four missionaries. 
That means the work then can be done faster and there's a saturation of ministry that can be done. They have the territory, double the people, and now they can do more work where the church is. What's interesting is that this kind of follow-up journey, this boomerang journey, Paul doesn't just encourage churches, he plants churches. By the Spirit's guidance in this journey, he plants churches, specifically three churches he plants, or maybe more churches in the city, but he hits three cities. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth. Those should sound familiar to you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. They should be familiar to you because if you go to your table of contents in your Bible, there's letters written to those churches. Five. The Philippians get one. The Thessalonians get two. And first and second Thessalonians. The Corinthians get two. First and second Corinthians. Now think for a moment. Just stop for a moment. All right? Let's just nerd out here a little bit and kind of speculate. If they never separated in Acts chapter 15, if the whole workload was on two men and the whole map, would Paul have time to plant those churches? Maybe not. And if Paul didn't have time to plant those churches, would he have wrote those letters? And if Paul didn't have the time to plant the churches, to write the letters, then we'd be missing five books in the New Testament. Did their loving disagreement lead to disunity, discord, and dysfunction? No. It led to impact, one that we reap from today. If you've ever been encouraged by the book of Philippians, if you've ever been encouraged by First and Second Thessalonians, if you've ever been encouraged by First and Second Corinthians, then you are impacted by this loving disagreement between these godly men reading the Bible well but applying it differently. Well, what about John Mark? What about that guy? Was Paul right? Should he not have been taken? tell you what, man, John Mark benefited greatly from the belief from his cousin Barnabas in a big way. We don't know tons about John Mark, but we know enough that he reached his potential, that he became a great missionary. We know later when Paul writes to Philemon in Philemon verse 24, there's only one chapter in that book, but in verse 24, he calls John Mark a fellow worker. That's a high title from the primary church planner in the first century world. Hey, you're a worker with me. We are on par. You're one of the Avengers. You're with us. But there's more than that. John Mark becomes more than that. More than just a fellow worker, a, a brother in arms, he becomes a friend. Right? Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. As Paul is dying, he is losing life, and he speaks about his journey being over, his race about to be done. Think about when you're on your deathbed or you are in a place where your, your health is diminishing. Who do you want around you? Your friends, right? Family members, those that you've done work with, those that mean a lot to you. Look at who's on Paul's list. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Get Mark. That's John Mark. Get Mark. Bring him with you. For he is very useful to me for ministry. He's a fellow worker and he's a friend. What about Barnabas? Now really as Acts, the book of Acts moves, the spotlight moves away from Barnabas and the spotlight really 
focuses on Paul. It makes sense that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, is a traveling companion of Paul. So it makes sense that the spotlight shifts and moves with him. But just because the spotlight's not on Barnabas anymore doesn't mean that he stops doing work. In fact, five years later, five years later, after Acts 15, Paul writes to a church, the church of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, he mentions Barnabas as a fellow worker, Barnabas as an example, Barnabas as a missionary, Barnabas a man of high character. So Barnabas continued the work. He continued to be faithful. Do you see? Loving disagreement can lead to lasting impact. And when we disagree, there's no reason that it has to diminish our impact. If these godly men, these wonderful men, can disagree, so can we. And if that disagreement doesn't lead to disunity, discord, and dysfunction, but can lead to impact, so too can our disagreement. This passage is incredibly applicable to us today. Today here at Valley Bible Church. You see, after much prayer, much discussion, many conversations over a significant period of time, it has become incredibly clear to both myself and to the elders that we have a different ministry philosophy. We have a different way of doing ministry, a different outlook, a different perspective. Now that is a loving disagreement, but it's a disagreement. One that can't be aligned, just like this here. No, this is, again, like I said, a loving disagreement. It's been filled with charity, with respect, and with honor. What you would expect godly men to do, godly men did in their conversation. And we have come to realize that alignment is not good for that, or that lack of alignment is not good for the health of Valley Bible Church moving forward. And because of that, I've decided to step down as lead pastor of Valley Bible Church. And that is incredibly difficult for me to do. And it does not mean that I don't love you, that I don't care about you. Just because I'm not here to lead you does not mean I don't love you. That is not what's at stake here. Love is not at stake here. Friendship is not at stake here. And I believe there is someone to come in here to lead you and to love you. But it's clear to me that that's not me. This has been the hardest sermon to ever preach in my life. By far. And for those of you that are watching online, I wish you were here with us. I wish I could hug you after the service. I wish that we had that space where we could sit in the uncomfortableness. I wish I could be there right beside you. And I want you to know that even though you're in the living room or you're watching on a computer, you're watching on your phone, the distance between us does not mean that there is not love between us. And my heart is with you. 
I don't, I don't like to deliver news that hurts to you and to any of you. But it's the news that has to be delivered. This will be my last time opening God's Word and explaining it to you. I'll be here next Sunday, both my family and I, and we would love to hug you. We would love to be able to express how much it has meant to us to serve you, how much an honor it has been to be your pastor. And the details of our discussions and the details of the differences are not ones that I think would be helpful to share. Just know that we're in agreement. Just like Paul and Barnabas. What serves the Lord right now, what serves the church right now, which is my greatest heart and my greatest goal, is to do what's best for you. It's clear to both the elders and I that it's time to part ways. To not stop doing ministry, to not be disqualified from ministry, but to do ministry apart from each other. The elders are going to come up right now and they're going to share a statement as well. And as they do that, I just want to say how gracious and how generous these men have been to both me and my family as we are trying to figure out what the next step is for us. God is calling us on a new adventure. We don't know where that is. We don't know where that will take us. And so we would covet your prayers deeply that you be praying for the Crandall family as we embark on this new journey. We're scared. There's question marks for us, but he has always been faithful to me. When his calling on my life almost left me homeless when I was 17, he was faithful to me. Right before I graduated seminary, two months before graduation with a wife who was five months pregnant, had everything in line to plant a church, had the funds raised, had the people committed. Everything was exciting. Everything was fun. Then all of a sudden, everything changed. The market crashed. The person in charge of leading and raising the money, turns out he got caught for one of the largest religious frauds in American church history. My head was spinning. I had no idea what to do. And then God called me here to serve as a middle school pastor. I'm not saying that all the questions what God was doing will be answered. I, I, I can't give you that. But I can say we obey his will forward. We understand it backward. And maybe when we get to that third, fourth, fifth, seventh step, we can look back and say, I get it. I get it. I love you. I care, you, I care about you. I want to hug you every single one of you. And please know that it's been a privilege and it's been an honor to serve you. Yes, it is a difficult day. And as we all know, doing the will of God is not always easy. It's not what the plan always looks like. But we love Paul dearly and we love his family 
dearly. And uh, we wanted to share. I know that uh, Paul shared his thoughts in a statement. We'll share ours in a statement. And all of our elders would normally have been here, but uh, Chuck Ladebaudier is home following COVID protocols uh, for he and his wife. So we want to pray for them as well. But he stands with us today in spirit. But we just wanted to share our heart as well as what we think God wants for Valley. Um, and I have a statement just like Paul did, but Paul's much more talented and can memorize it, and I cannot. So I will read the statement so I don't forget something that's very important. We want you to know that after much prayer and many discussions, our relationship with our lead pastor, Dr. Paul Crandall, is changing. God has made it clear to the elders and to Paul that although we both love, serve, and proclaim the same Jesus, we have come to the understanding that we have different philosophies of how to do that. While it's clear to us that God used Paul to help lead Valley Bible Church through an incredibly difficult and unprecedented season, we know that the same God that brought Paul and the Crandall family to Valley Bible Church has clearly spoken to Paul and to us that his season of service at Valley Bible Church should come to a close. And I would say it's an unexpected close. Therefore, we both believe that God has called Paul to step away from Valley to be used where Paul's giftedness and leadership can be expressed in keeping with his convictions. As a result, Paul has elected to step down, and his official capacity as our lead pastor will conclude as of September 5, 2021. Please understand that this is a mutual parting of ways and is absolutely not, can I say this any louder, not related to any sort of sin or character flaw in Paul. Paul is a great servant of Christ. We firmly believe that God will direct Paul to a ministry that better fits his unique gifting. It is in love that we release Paul from his position, and in love, Paul has requested that release. We believe that Paul will continue to have many friends here at Valley, and we will still see Paul and his family around the community and even at church while God is directing them to their new ministry assignment. They and we would ask you to pray for Paul's next steps as well as for Valley's. Although today was Paul's last Sunday in the pulpit, his last scheduled Sunday with us will be September 5th. At the end of our 9 and 11 a.m. services on that day, we'll have a special place set up where you will have an opportunity to show your love and your appreciation for Paul and Lindsay and their family because we want to send them out with blessing and honor not in the shade and in the dark. We sincerely love Paul and his family and greatly appreciate how he is walking through this process with us with great integrity and a desire to protect you, God's people, here at Valley Bible Church. 
We wish him and the Crandall family God's greatest blessings and service of our King in the future. Please continue to pray for Paul, God's precious servant, and his family as they seek God's will in their future place of service. These parts of the statements will be online if you want to reread them and see what we said, because I know to many of you this is like a shock. I was telling the men over time as Paul and the elders have had these discussions, it's like getting used to cold water. You can get used to it, or you may not like it, but if people are thrown in suddenly, it can seem shocking. And I understand that, but we're with you, and we appreciate your thoughts. But I have something that I would like to say from me as we move forward and as we say goodbye. While we recognize this may be a difficult and parting, a parting and transition, we know we will miss Paul and his family greatly. We also know that the true head of this church is Jesus Christ, our Lord, and he's still on the throne, and he has not gone anywhere. This transition didn't keep, catch Jesus off guard. This is his church, and he loves and cares for this church more than any one of us. And as our great shepherd, we are confident that he knows and can lead and protect his church. Dear church family, please know we're not in a crisis. We are just trusting God and doing our best to obediently follow the path he has laid before Paul and us. We believe that God called Paul and his family to Valley. We still believe that. We believe that God used Paul to help minister to Valley in an incredibly tough time while he was here. Just as the same way, we firmly believe that God is Paul calling Paul away. Just as we needed to trust in God to take care of Valley Bible Church, when our beloved emeritus pastor, Dr. Philip Howard, stepped down after 48 years of faithful service, we will continue to trust God now. He has not stopped being faithful. He will provide. The elders are confident that God still has much fruitful ministry and many wonderful things in store for both Paul and for Valley Bible Church. We are also thankful that God has blessed Valley Bible Church with capable, godly, and willing men who can preach the word. Beginning next week, so you know what to look forward to, the, the preaching team will again move forward in the pulpit each week to present and proclaim God's love in the word of God. This preaching team will faithfully proclaim God's word as long as necessary with much dependence on God, with much prayer, and seeking God's direction, this team will stay in place until it doesn't, is not needed. I can understand it's difficult to just get your arms around why Paul is leaving, but please know that when God clearly speaks to both Paul and us, we must listen. Would you please pray with me as we thank God for bringing Paul here and for 
praying for God's leading in his life and in Valley Bible Church's life in the days ahead. We're going to pray for Paul. So, Paul, would you come up here and let us put our arms on you, buddy? Heavenly Father, what a difficult assignment you've given us and what a precious man you've put in our place. Thank you so much for calling Paul Crandall and his family here. Thank you for the incredible work that you allowed him to do during some tough, tough circumstances. We love Paul. We'll miss Paul. But we want to obey you more. Help us, Father, as we move through these next weeks and days. I know it'll be challenging for Paul and his family. Would you lead them? Would you protect them? Would you guard them? Would you inspire them? Would you give them hope of this new, lasting impact that they will produce because of the separation? Father, I know you were in the separation of Paul and Barnabas. You knew by separating them they would accomplish more. Who knew you would use a sharp disagreement to make that happen. Why didn't you just tell them in the night in a nice friendly call? Yes, you didn't do that and we don't know why. But your ways are inscrutable to us, Father. But we know that you have your hand all over Paul and his family and we know that you can lift him up to even a better place, a more fruitful place of ministry that has his name all over it. We ask you to give him that kind of vision and optimism and provision that that path would be clearly seen and obediently followed. Father, we pray for this church that you would help all of us get through the the change that will ultimately come because of these uh, steps. Father, we, we had no idea that this is what you wanted to do when we called him. None. We, we kind of thought this was a long-term call too. But you had a different idea. And we're not sure why, but we're going to trust you once again and say, Father, our hope is in you. Jesus, we know you know how to lead a church, and you won't lead it wrongly. So help us men as we listen to the Holy Spirit, be led by the Holy Spirit, as this church prays, as we pray that you would direct and guide and provide and protect and accomplish all you want to accomplish in this body. Father, you can close the doors on us any day you want. We pray that you would not. We pray you give us unity and give us vision again and hope again. Even though we see a change of plan and the death of a vision, we want you to give us the new vision. What do you want Valley Bible Church to accomplish in Jesus' name? Father, thank you for this opportunity to just love on Paul. Help us all to put our arms around him and let him know that we love him. We don't send him away in disgrace. We don't send him away in shame. We send him away with honor. He's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ who is going to do battle on a different battlefield. He is a soldier of the Lord. So, Father, may he have victory on the field of battle that you send him. Father, thank you for this time. I ask that you protect each person in this building and at home that's watching and affiliated with Valley Bible Church, that they would know that we come here and we will remain here as long as you are faithful, which will be forever. So thank you, Father, for being faithful to Valley. Thank you for lifting us up. Thank you for providing. We ask you to do it again. In Jesus' precious name, amen.